it's not about you. That's the opening line of Rick Warren's book entitled The Purpose Driven Life. That four word phrase is not hard to read. But sometimes that four word phrase is really hard to live. It's not about you. Apparently, the man that was standing in the audience of Jesus had never read Rick Warren's book entitled The Purpose Driven Life because he was operating under the assumption that it really is all about me. This morning, I thought it might be appropriate for us to take a step away from the study of James and consider a life worth living from Luke chapter 12. We've already uh, made our commitments unto the Lord for our 2020 D&D challenge. But I thought it might be appropriate for us just to take a moment and turn to the gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 12 and stand out of reverence the public reading of God's holy word. This morning I want to read in your hearing Luke chapter 12 verses 13 to 21. Listen as I read. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. At this time in Luke's gospel, Jesus is in mid-form. He's attracting large crowds wherever he goes. The author of our text tells us in Luke chapter 12 verse 1 that many thousands of people were coming to hear Jesus preach. There were so many people in the crowd that they were pressing and jockeying for better position so they could get an earshot to hear everything that the rabbi had to say. The end result, according to Luke chapter 12, verse 1, is that people were trampling on each other. It was a mob mentality. People were pressing in, just trying to get close to Jesus, and they were trampling one upon the other. I can't quite blame them, though. Jesus 
was a great preacher. And on this day, this had the makings of being a spectacular sermon. I mean, just the first 12 verses give us indication that this was going to be a humdinger of a sermon. I mean, this is something where on this day, Jesus had uh, numerous tweetable quotes. And on this day, Jesus said some things that you could really put on your Instagram story and really impress all your friends. Because on this day, Jesus made statements like, don't be afraid of the one who can kill the body and then no longer do anything else. You be fearful of the one who has the power and the authority to not only kill the body, but also throw that person into eternity's hell. You put that on Instagram, that'll make some people perk up and listen. Jesus also said in the introduction of the sermon that God cares so much for you that he has the hairs on your head numbered. He goes to such great lengths to know you and, and to love you and be compassionate towards you that he even knows the number of hair follicles that are on your head. And then Jesus said, anyone who acknowledges me before men will be acknowledged before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before the angels of God. I mean, this has the makings of being a powerful sermon. And in the middle of that, before Jesus can move on to his next point, right in the middle of the sermon, some anonymous individual just starts shouting a question. It's really more of a demand. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, I know that Jesus is perfect. But in that moment, the perfect preacher must have thought, what does that have to do with anything I've been talking about? Then it hits me. Obviously, this man had come to church with an axe to grind. This man came to the congregation that day. He was consumed with an injustice that he perceived that was going on in his life. This was something that kept him up at night. This is something that churned in his stomach. This is a scenario in his personal life that just would not let him go. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I've got to cut this man some slack because while he doesn't say it, the implication is there that this man probably at some level is still grieving the death of his father. His father had probably died sometime earlier. And this is more than likely the younger of the two sons of the deceased man. In those days, it was customary for the firstborn to be the executor of the estate. And so the older brother was the executor of the estate, and he was in line to receive two-thirds of the inheritance. The one who voices this injustice is probably the younger brother. 
because he does not have really any recourse. He's not the executor of the estate, but he still is in line to receive one-third of daddy's wealth. For whatever reason, big brother, older brother, firstborn son was dragging his feet. We don't know why he was dragging his feet, but for whatever reason, he was not executing the will. He was not uh, being the executor of the estate in a timely fashion. The younger brother had gone to his older brother, and he had demanded the money. He had pleaded for the inheritance. He said, you know, daddy would be rolling over in his grave if he knew what you were doing to me and to the family. You're tearing us apart. The last thing he said on his deathbed is that we must be a family that will always stick together. Oh, but the older brother wasn't doing anything. Once again, you don't know why. This is not the first time nor the last time that families would go to court fighting over money. So he had a, a beef. He had a concern. It was uh, an itch that would not let him go. He was so frustrated. I don't think uh, this man was listening at all to the sermon of Jesus. But once again, I... I do have to cut him some slack because I've sat in a lot of sermons that I haven't listened to. And you have sat in a lot of sermons that you haven't listened to. In fact, there are some of you right now and you're not listening to me. And the reason you're not listening to me is because you think to yourself, I've got a situation that keeps me up at night, and I've got an axe to grind, and I've got a perceived injustice in my life. And right now, what, be, what might be rolling over in your mind is that broken relationship, that marital problem, that health crisis, that financial difficulty. You've got more month than money. You don't have a job. You need a job. Every talking head says that the economy in the United States of America is strong, yet not in your world. Because you need a good job. And you can't find one. Oh, you want your prodigal granddaughter to be found, but she's still wasting away in the far country. You've got an issue with your spouse. And it's not getting any better. It's getting worse. Maybe you, as a husband and wife, you desperately want a child. But infertility seems to be the lot of your life. It's these kind of issues, these crisis, concern. They keep you up at night and they keep you from listening to a sermon. I do find some comfort in the realization that this man wasn't even listening to the sermon of Jesus. So if you don't listen to my sermon, eh. I mean, he wasn't even captivated by the words of Christ. Why? Because there was something going on in his life that kept him from listening. I remember when this realization that uh, people come to church with a uh, suitcase full of problems. I, really, I remember when that finally hit me. I was 
in my first pastorate in Kentucky. I went there straight out of seminary. And when I got there, they said, we have this thing called a prayer meeting on Wednesday night. And because you're our pastor, you're going to have to lead that thing. And I thought to myself, great. And then the next thought that came to my mind was this, what's a prayer meeting? I don't think I've ever been to one. Now, just follow me here. I mean, as a child, I was in children's ministry. And as a student, I was in student ministry. I went off to college, and I was involved in college ministry. Before I graduated from college, I had my first part-time youth ministry. So I was with the students, the teenagers. And then I went to seminary. And all the while I was in seminary, I was a student pastor with students. And now I'm fresh out of seminary. I'm at my first church, and they tell me, you've got to lead a midweek uh, prayer meeting. And I thought to myself, great, what is it? I've never been to a prayer meeting. But I was smart enough to know um, I could just think about the title and it would tell me something about the purpose of the meeting. So it's a prayer meeting. Therefore, by implication, it must mean that people get together to pray. So I thought that would be a great idea. We'll get together. I'll do a little devotion. And then we'll pray. And the way I wanted this to go down was uh, that if, if Sally had a prayer concern, that as soon as Sally voiced that concern, I wanted Jim, or somebody like Jim, to be able to pray for Sally's concern. And that's how we were going to occupy, navigate the majority of the prayer time. That as somebody prayed, then somebody else, as somebody had a prayer concern, then somebody prayed. Then somebody else had a prayer concern, then somebody else prayed. Seems like a pretty good idea, doesn't it? It was a lousy idea. That was the most depressing thing I've ever done in my life. I cannot tell you the number of broken hips and broken hearts and broken homes that we prayed for in eight years. And I, I tell you, i got to be honest about this. I really think that just about every week in that little town, every person had at least four surgeries. I believe that. I believe that every person in that little town had at least, on average, four surgeries every single week. And I would walk away from there, and I'd, I'd be so depressed. I'd be so demoralized. I'd think to myself, can nobody say anything positive or good? Is everything just, just negative and, 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 and terrible? And then I would ask somebody, I would say, how long have you guys been doing this thing called the Wednesday night prayer meeting? Well, pastor, we've been doing it since the doors were open. You've got to be kidding me. You've been doing this for all those years. So then I thought to myself, I'm going to throw a curveball. What I'm going to do is we're not going to have a a prayer service. We're going to have a praise service. So what we're going to do is, is I'm going to put together just a Jim Dandy little devotion about the goodness and greatness of God. And then I'll set it up in such a way that I'll ask, is there anybody who has a praise report that they want to share in the body? Anybody who has something good that's been going on that you just want to share with your brothers and sisters in Christ? I thought it was a great idea, right? I mean, the devotion was spectacular. Of course, I thought it was. I wrote it. So I thought to myself, this is great. It's going to be so well received. It's going to be awesome. So I did a little devotion on the goodness and greatness of God. Anybody have a praise that they just want to share with the entire crowd. And all of a sudden, the woman I could always count on, 
She sat in the back and she shot her hand up. Of course, I use the word shot liberally because she was 87 years old and there wasn't nothing moving very fast. But she just kind of gingerly brought her hand into the air. And I called on her. Yes, ma'am, what do you have for us? I'll never forget what she told me. She said, just this afternoon, I got a phone call from my best friend who has inoperable liver cancer. And they do not expect her to live. And I was looking at her like you're looking at me. So what's the rest of the story? Friend, there was no rest of the story. That was it. That was it. And I sat there and I thought to myself, did you not hear what I just said? Did you not process what I was saying? I just talked about for the last 15 minutes about the goodness and greatness of God. And I asked for a praise report. And you tell me about somebody's inoperable liver cancer. Are you kidding me? So in that moment... Uh, I knew I had to say something, and I didn't know what to say. So in that moment, as a young preacher, this is exactly what I said. Uh, praise the Lord. I said, I said, praise the Lord. I didn't know what to say. Praise the Lord. Are there any other praise reports? Nobody else raised their hand. Nobody else did. It was the shortest Wednesday night prayer meeting we've ever had in the history of that church. And then the very next week, we went back to all of the broken hips, broken hearts, and broken homes. I remember walking out from that night thinking to myself, she wasn't listening to anything I was saying. Why? Because she was overwhelmed with the fact that her best friend, was just diagnosed with liver cancer, saying we can't operate. There's nothing more we can do. She's probably not going to make it. And that is what was heavy on her mind and her heart. And it didn't matter what the preacher said, because that was going to come out of her personal experience. In the same way, I cut this man some slack in Luke chapter 12. Because for whatever reason, he is overcome by the family feud that's going on in his life where his brother is refusing to divide daddy's estate. So he comes to Jesus. If anybody can fix it, Jesus can. He's attracting crowds of thousands of people. Everybody wants to hear what he has to say about everything. So all the while Jesus is preaching, this man is in the back thinking to himself, when can I interject my question? Now Jesus handles the scenario far better than I did. Jesus uh, addresses the man. Who made me judge between the two of you. Now when you read that, it sounds like Jesus is a little bit perturbed, doesn't it? And I think that he is. He is a little bit frustrated with this anonymous man's request. Because Jesus sees it as a demotion. This man had just demoted Jesus. And what Jesus is telling this man in so many words, is I did not come just to settle sibling squabbles. I didn't come just to, just to fix family feuds. 
I didn't come just to show you how to have a happy life or a, or a good marriage or how to raise healthy children. I, I didn't come to teach you just how to be healthy or wealthy. I didn't come, Jesus says by implication, not just to astound you with a few statements or to impress you with a handful of miracles. Don't reduce me down just to a judge who settles family disputes. I am much more than that. In so many words, Jesus is telling this man that I am the Savior who came to bring spiritually dead people to life. Friend, if you miss that, you've missed everything about the gospel. Remember what we learned when Jesus interacted with the paralytic on the mat. Jesus showed us by his action that he has the power to heal and the authority to forgive sins. His interaction with the lunatic named Legion teaches us that Jesus goes to strange places at strange times to break sin's bondage one person at a time. The mountain of transfiguration reminds us in a blockbuster setting that Jesus is the Christ who's in a class all by himself. Jesus is the Savior who satisfies. He is the Messiah who mystifies. He is the Lord who gives life. If you miss the fact that Jesus came to raise spiritually dead people to life, if you miss that, you've missed it all. Don't reduce him. Don't demote him. Don't limit him as to somebody who can just be an ecclesiastical bellhop. Somebody who's just at my ever wish and call. Somebody who just does my bidding. Somebody who just gives me what I want. Somebody who just fixes my problems. No, Jesus is so much more than a judge between two siblings. Jesus um, does address this man, though. He told him to watch out for greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Watch out, be on guard against all forms of greed. This man probably has a legitimate case to gripe. He probably is in line for a third of the estate. It probably is a lucrative payoff. And Jesus is telling this man, if that day ever comes, and if you do come into that great sum of money, watch out. Because what you think will be the answer to your prayer might be your demise. So watch out for all forms of greed. The word greed in the ancient text is covetousness. Um, we think we know what greed means. We have no idea what covetousness means. We do know that God's again it because the 10th commandment says thou shalt not covet. We've talked about it enough to know that to covet is to want something that doesn't belong to you. It's to want more of what you have enough of already. You know, you can covet just about anything. 
You can covet somebody else's grades. You can covet somebody else's good looks. You can covet somebody else's athletic ability. You can covet somebody else's car or house or landscaping or lawnmower. You can covet somebody else's children or bank account or wife or life. You can covet just about anything and everything. It's to want something that you don't have. It's to want something that that you have enough of already. And Jesus says to this man, be on guard against all kinds of greed, covetousness. Because life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. That's an amazing tagline. That's a tweetable quote just right there. I mean, Jesus is saying to this man and to any man, to any person who will give a listening ear, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He who thinks that if he possesses enough, then he will win the race, that person just might be possessed by all of his possessions. So that he becomes ensnared and entrapped into paying off all the things that he just thought he had to have. Life does not consist in the accumulation of possessions. Then Jesus gives one of those powerful hand grenade stories called parables. Al Mohler said that every parable is a hand grenade. It's explosive. So listen carefully to this story. Jesus says there was a rich man who was a farmer. And this rich farmer was a hard worker. Every farmer I know is a hard worker. Not every farmer I know is a rich man. But in this story, the hardworking farmer was a wealthy farmer. I'm sure this man um, spent numerous days in the field. He got up and was in the field before the sun peaked over the eastern horizon. I'm confident this man worked in the field all the live long day. He was probably in the field uh, even after the sun peeked over the western sky and darkness blanketed the day. This man worked for years. Uh, he had a lucrative uh, little business. He had many fields, he had several farms, he had some barns. Those barns were full of previous year's crops and harvest. Jesus says, but this year there was a harvest that was a bumper crop. And this man had a legitimate dilemma. What am I supposed to do? All of my existing barns are full. And now I've got even more goods and grain coming in. What am I going to do? I don't know how religious this man was. I suspect that he was a good southern guy. He probably went to church occasionally. I would think that we would regard him as a CEO. You know, Christmas, Easter only kind of thing. He knew where the church was. He would occasionally probably go to church. But most of the time, he would probably say, I can't make it. Why? Because my ox is in the ditch. And I've just got to go work. I've got to get more of the harvest in. I say all that to say, I, I think this man probably occasionally went to church, but, but the day that the old town pastor 
talked about the reality that you've been blessed to be a blessing or to whom much is given, much is required. Oh, on that day, either the farmer wasn't in the crowd or the farmer just wasn't listening. I think maybe both of those could be the proper scenario. I know this man is pretty self-absorbed. The reason I know it, in three verses, verses 17, 18, and 19 of the sacred text, he uses the words, I am my, 12 times. What am I going to do? This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my existing barns and I'll build bigger barns. Now that is a solution. It might not be the best solution, but it is a solution. The way I'll handle all of this increase is that I'll just tear down my existing barns. What's wrong with your existing barns? Not a thing. They're just not big enough. So I'll tear down my existing barns and I'll build bigger, better, stronger barns. And then he began to calculate everything I have plus what I'm going to get in this bumper crop. You know what? I think I can retire early. I can eat, drink, and be merry, and I can enjoy the rest of my days. Sound like a pretty good idea. He might have talked it over with his wife, and his wife may have said to him, um, honey, whatever you think you need to do, I'll support you. He hired the best architect in town. They began to draw up the plans of what the bigger, newer barns were going to look like and where they're going to be positioned on the farm. One late evening, the architect was at the kitchen table, right across from the farmer. It was getting late. The candle was drawing to an end of its wick. The lead architect said to the farmer, I'll make all the adjustments that you want. Uh, I think we can um, add a loft to the fourth barn. We can put a conveyor belt into the third barn. And what you want to do to the second barn, that's not going to be a problem either. I think I can handle all of your last-minute adjustments. Um, I'll rework this. I'll, I'll bring back the new blueprints tomorrow. Is that okay? Yes, sir. That would be great. Uh, Mr. Farmer, don't worry about getting up. Um, I've been here so many times. We've made so many adjustments to the plans. I know where the front door is. <laughs> it's late. I'll see myself out. The architect left. I can visualize that the wife came up, urging her husband, let's go to bed. It's late. She kissed him on the forehead. He gave a promise. I, I'll be there in just a minute. Just let me make a few more calculations. I'll be right there, honey. She went off towards the bedroom. He thought to himself, who am I kidding? There's no way I can go to sleep. The adrenaline's pumping, the wheels are turning. I mean, he's dreaming, he's thinking, he's planning. Look at all of these bigger, better barns that he's building. Apparently, the rich farmer was not just building up barns. He was building up stress. All of a sudden, a sharp pain filled the cavity of his chest. And shooting pain went down his arm. 
And in an instant, the lights went out and he died. The next morning, the, the wife woke up and she was concerned because her husband never came to bed. She rushed down the steps and she went into the kitchen and there he was, slumped over the table. In the days that followed, the whole community came together. They planned an extravagant funeral. I suspect the funeral was probably at the church. It's not that he never came to church. He just rarely came to church. The old town preacher stood up and began to eulogize this man that was in the cedar box. He applauded him for his hard work. Applauded him for taking care of his family, wife and kids and grandkids. He applauded this man for uh, those couple of times when as pastor he went to him asking him, can you help fund this project or that project at church? And that man was willing to do it just so long as he got credit for the contribution. I'm sure that more than one occasion the preacher probably looked at the students and said, now, y'all need to model your life after this guy. He worked hard. You need to work hard. He had a good job. You need to have a good job. He took care of his family. You need to take care of your family. And at some point, the preacher probably said, here lies a good man. You know what's ironic? Is that God, in that same story, said, here lies a foolish man. Why does God call him a fool? Was this man a fool because he was rich? No. Was this man a fool because he had great wealth? No. Was this man a fool because he had big barns? No. Why was this man a fool? This man was a fool according to the parable of Jesus because he wasn't rich toward God. It's perfectly fine to have big barns. Just make sure that God is the lead architect of your life. Jesus said, this man was a fool. Because on this night, his life was demanded from him. And who would get all that he made plans to store? Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. So if life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions, then what does life consist of? I mean, th if this is not a race, if this is not um, the one who dies with the most toys wins, if this is not look out for yourself, if this is not build your own kingdom, if this is not you got to look out in a dog-eat-dog -dog world because nobody else is going to look out for you. If this is not what life is all about, if it's not about having barns and building bigger barns, if it's not about having stuff and having more stuff and being stuffed with our stuff, if this is not what life's about, then what is life about? Friend, I'm glad you asked. Because actually Jesus, who is a masterful preacher, used this interruption as an opportunity he continued the sermon right after the story. It is a seamless message. 
that goes from chapter 12, verse 1, all the way through chapter 12. It is a seamless message. And Jesus used this story to set up what he wanted to say next. Verses 22 and following. Jesus then said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, about your body, what you'll wear. Life is more than food, the body is more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They don't sow or reap, they have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? Since you can't do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow, thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you'll eat or drink. Do, do not worry about it. For the pagans, they run after such things. And your father knows that you need them. Here's the kicker, verse 31. But seek his kingdom, and all these things will be given to you as well. If life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions, then what does life consist of? Seeking his kingdom. Seeking Christ and the kingdom of Christ. That you are obsessed with obedience unto the Lord, that you are preoccupied with Jesus and what he wants you to do. So you leverage everything at your disposal. You use your time to seek his kingdom. You use your money to seek his kingdom. You use your relationships to seek his kingdom. You use your marriage to seek his kingdom. You use your family to seek his kingdom. You use your hobbies to seek his kingdom. Seek Christ and him crucified. Seek his kingdom in everything that you do. This, my friend, is the secret to a life worth living. We get consumed with a lot of things. We get consumed with the food that we're going to eat and the clothes that we're going to wear and the boy that we're going to date and the girl that we're going to date. We get consumed about the major we're going to have at college. We get consumed about the job we're going to fulfill. We get consumed about who we're going to marry. We get consumed about are we going to have any children? Are those children going to be productive citizens of the world? We get consumed about sports and shopping and sex, just to name a few. And Jesus says the pagans run after all these things. But you, you're different. You're not a pagan. You're a Christ chaser. You're somebody who seeks first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these other things, they're added to you. What Jesus is saying is uh, you, you be preoccupied with the eternal, not the temporary. Let me say that again. Be preoccupied with the eternal, not the temporary. I've got to remind myself of that far too many times than I want to admit. I'll get all worked up about something. I'll get all frustrated. I'll tell myself it's righteous indignation. You ever do that? And then I got to remind myself, uh, hey, big boy, are you getting upset about something that's eternal or temporary? More times than not temporary. 
Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Life consists in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and you and me seeking his kingdom. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. If there's one here listening to my voice who has never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, to surrender to your sovereignty, Lord, today I pray that you, by your Spirit's power, will draw them unto yourself. Lord, for those of us who are here who are believers, but maybe, maybe we get churned up about things that are temporary. Maybe we get all eaten up by things of this world. And Father, on this day, help us to say that we want to seek first your kingdom in all things. Lord, draw your people to yourself. We're going to be quick to give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.